So I'm going to go into the intro now. All right. Get it. Thanks for listening to Hip Squared. I'm your co-host, John Beecham. And I'm Troy Kramer. This is American Fantastic's pop culture podcast, celebrating everything from the mainstream to the independent, weird, old, and local. Troy, how's it going? Uh, I'm busy, man. I have, between teaching uh, classes and work, I'm just, like, exhausted and have no time to do anything. Which I suspect rings hollow on the guy that just had a kid. Well, (laughs) I feel like um, a piece of... A pat of butter stretched too thin over toast. That is, yeah, that is a very yeah. apt description. Okay, so. yeah, I can feel that. But, um, well, we made it. It's uh, the beginning of the week. It's the beginning of, it's the end of the beginning of the week, Tuesday. That's, that's true, we're, we're getting to hump day. We're almost there, so, yeah, I think we just need to power through, man. I know, we can do it. We can do it. For me, I've only got, like, two hours short of half the week done, because nine-hour workdays are the best. Yeah. So, man, lucky. lucky. Uh, uh, so, what have you been into lately? Um. So, not this week, this last weekend, but the weekend before that, I thought I had free time, and by I thought I've had free time, I mean I was procrastinating in time. So, I ended up watching a uh, new series on Netflix, uh, series of unfortunate events. The Lemony Snicket one. Yeah, the Lemony Snicket one. So, a series. I watched the series, a series of unfortunate events. Okay. Which was uh, pretty good, actually. If you read the so I read the books as a kid. Okay, and so just kind of like gen, for those of us not familiar with Lemony Snicket and the series of unfortunate events, like what is it all about? Um, so it's about these three kids, the Baudelaire's, which is a fantastic name uh, to start off with. It's very evocative. Yes, very. It sounds like a piece of furniture. Like oh, put it in my Baudelaire. Yes, and <laughs> like so. When you're reading the book as a kid, you probably say the name just like Baudelaire, Baudelaire. What, but when you're watching it as a TV show, it's great because you have everybody pronouncing it very in a very fancy tone. It's like, oh, the Baudelaire orphans. Yeah. Are they like aristocrats? <laughs> um, yeah, well, their parents were very rich and wealthy and had this huge house until it all burned down in a fire and the parents died. Oh. Yeah. So that was the first unfortunate event. Yeah, that okay. was the there's first. series that follows? There's quite a series that and follows. there's a series about the series... Of yes. Events. Yes. That's what we're talking about, and that's what I yeah, that's okay. what I watch. So, um, I read the books as a kid. Uh, they were written. It, all of them are written, quote unquote, by an author by the name of Lemony Snicket, who's not an actual person. Uh, but it's a non diplume. It's a non diplume. Okay. Um, because who would actually name their child Lemony Snicket unless they were a very cruel parent? Yeah. Um, sounds very Ivy League or like hoity toity. <laughs> I don't know. It's just, it also sounds like kind of. Kind like of on edge. Or like a Roald Dahl character. Mm-hmm. Like oh. Lemony Snicket and Dewsbury Lane. That would be like a Roald Dahl book. That, that it would. It's I mean, it's a very childish name. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also like a name that's, I don't know, sharp and doesn't doesn't ring happy. Like you yeah. don't hear the name Lemony Snicket and think like happy. Yeah, it kind of sounds sunshine. like it could be like a curse. Like, ah, oh, Lemony Snicket. Exactly. <laughs> so uh, that sets up the premise for these books where... Whatever is happening, whatever is going on in these books, assume it's going to go wrong. Okay. Um, so, like, Murphy's Law applied yeah, to young adult literature, kind of? Pretty much. Um, the Netflix series covers the first uh, three books. Okay. It's eight episodes. Um, so, each epi- each 
And the books themselves are pretty short, right? Like, they're not, like, Harry Potter-sized tomes. They're, like, little slim kind of volumes, right? Yeah, they're, like, 100 pages. Okay. Um, quick, quick read for kids that are probably, like, 9 to... Mm-hmm. Could probably go younger than 8 to 12, 13. Yeah. Um, but they're good for, yeah, like, um, middle school, early middle school um, reads. But... I would definitely recommend them for that age and not any younger because, man, are they depressing. Because, yeah. like, one of the first things that happens... You need to teach your children the color harsh reality of the world. I mean... I mean there's... They should get introduced to that lesson, like, early on, right? Early and often is probably what it's going to be like for the rest of their lives. <laughs> I mean, yes, but, geez, can, can we lay off it a bit? Because in the first, in the first um, few pages, in the first, like, ten minutes of the book, their parents have died... Everything they owned has been burned down in a fire. Um, and they're sent to live with this really creepy uncle who in the show is played by Neil Patrick Harris. Okay. So in real life, you know, your uncle being Neil Patrick Harris would be pretty sweet. Yeah. Not the case in when your life is a series of unfortunate events. I guess not. It'd be like creepy Doogie Hauser taking yeah. care of you. Yes. What is uh, the uncle like? Like, what, How does Neil Patrick Harris play him? Um, eccentric would be an understatement. Okay. So he's the, the character of... <clears throat> Count Olaf, yeah, which is a also a great name. A lot of great names in this. Um, is he like got some sort of like Scandinavian <clears throat> faux accent? Not at all. His he's name just, is Olaf. No, it's just Olaf. He's straight American. Okay. Um, he's he might be like some hoity-toity. Is he thinks like he's hoity-toity. Old timey. Is it like Victorian, like Charles Dickensy times, or like what time period is supposed to take place in? Um, it's very vague. Okay. Uh, I believe it's current time period. Gotcha. But, like, a lot of the scenarios surrounding it make it feel not current time period. Okay. Like, these kids that are being raised by, like, rich parents in this huge mansion, this okay. old-timey mansion. Um, but anyways, back to back to Count Olaf. He's this... Uh, in the show, he's an actor. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, just imagine, like, the worst stage actor you can think of. Not Neil Patrick Harris. Not Neil Patrick Harris. <laughs> and not in the turn, not in like, oh, he doesn't like know what he's doing. He doesn't know how to act, but he overdoes everything. Oh, so he's like an overactor. So like, yeah. so then he can really kind of like ham it up. Yes. Okay. And it's hilarious because he, he like walks down the, the first time you see him, he walks down the steps in a very dramatic fashion. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's, it's. I think the first time that Neil Patrick Harris played, like, a very impressive cartoonish villain like that and, like, kind of, like, helped people rediscover NPH mm-hmm. was uh, Dr. Horrible. Dr. Sing Horrible Sing Log Log, yeah. So he definitely, if, for those of you who haven't seen it, it was, like, a YouTube <laughs> series they came up with during the writer's strike because you're still allowed to put stuff out on the internet. But uh, Neil Patrick Harris is a singing mad scientist mm-hmm. and has, like, a super... So it's, like, this, the idea of him playing an over-the-top villain... And, like, having it up, it's, like, it's something he's already, like, in his wheelhouse, and I'm glad to see he's getting new opportunities to flex his muscles. Yeah, so he's... <clears throat> oh, man, I'm sorry. Uh, he's been really good um, hamming it up. The um, But the children are also really good. Um, Malin, Malina Wiseman mm-hmm. and Lewis Hayes play uh, the two older kids. It's three kids. Yeah. Um, Violet, Klaus, and Sonny, who's a baby. Okay. Um, I like the name Klaus. <laughs> Klaus, yes. Klaus Baudelaire. Oh, wow. Spelt with a K. Yeah. Um, like Klaus Kinski. Because C-L-A-U-S would just be too common. Yeah. Um, so, uh, the, the kid actors are fantastic. Yeah. Um, 
I would say they're a little nervous in the first like episode or two and almost like stiff and awkward, but they really get into the role and so, you see So they like kinda like deadpan kids? Like what are their like how does the writing like are they sort of like hapless victims to their circumstances? Or are they like take an active role or like what are the kids like in these books? So uh the kids are uh let's see. Klaus is so Violet's the oldest, she's okay. the sister, and she is very much like science, mathy, inventor, inventor. So she's like Donatello. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, um, that's not a good description because okay. they're all really smart. They okay. all have... Also, they're all smart in their own way. Yeah, they yeah. all have these gotcha. qualities that they bring to her. So Violet's the inventor. Okay. Uh, Klaus is the reader. Okay. So um, a lot of what he like does for the show is he's reading books from the library whenever there's a bunch of books around he is reading them uh and sunny bites things okay that's a, the, like just like a baby that's like a fierce yeah she's yeah. she just bites and wants to chew through everything okay. uh which comes up at a couple times so yeah. she's like the maggie simpson like comes in handy every once in a while like in the clutch yes the baby will do something you won't expect right um and one of the things they do in the show is um you know obviously you understand what violin klaus say but Sonny just makes baby sounds. Okay. Is um, he like a CGI baby? Like, how do they handle uh, that? They switch back and forth. Okay. Uh, it is a real baby sometimes, and then when they need her to do, like, different things, they'll yeah. switch to a CGI baby. Okay. Um, but she will make baby sounds, which, uh, luckily, subtitles will do the great job of translating them for you. <laughs> so Sonny is really sarcastic. Okay. Sonny. <laughs> So, so she's got her own personality. Is that something that's like in the books that they bring over, or is that something that they created for the show, like that you know what the baby's saying? I believe that's from the books. Okay. Uh, again, I, have, I read the books years ago, so I don't remember, but I believe okay. it's from the books. Because I can only think of like look who's talking when I think of like talking babies, but I mm-hmm. guess if there's like a snarky, she's, she's like sarcastic kind of. Yeah. Baby? Okay. Yeah, just like people will like one of the first. Um, People will insult her all the time, and she'll make a. It'll make a goo goo sound. She'll be like, "Hey, what are you? What do you mean by that, <laughs> jerk?" <laughs> there's like a great tradition of like snarky, sarcastic babies. Like, well, there's Luke who's talking with like Roseanne and Bruce Willis, but then there's also the baby from the Dinosaur Show. Oh yeah, yeah. And there's like you know not the mama, and um, I kind of like that that whole tradition of like the baby is like the wise fool that can say anything and get away with it is like still. Mm-hmm permeating pop culture and they have another they have another funny thing which comes up every now and then that violet can perfectly understand what sunny is saying at any time so it's kind of like han and chewbacca like sunny will say something and then she'll translate for them yeah okay (laughs) now uh is she ever translating correctly oh well she'll like make it nicer oh she's sort of like more diplomatic exactly because she's the older sister i think violet's like 13 and klaus is probably like 12 or 11 um but i'll we've been talking about this for a good chunk and i haven't mentioned the main premise which is every book and like Mm -hmm. series of episodes kind of falls in the same way and that um the kids are sent to live off with a relative or somebody they know and so then, they keep getting passed on. And then something the tragic book. happens, oh, too. No. So in the first one, uh, they live with Count Olaf. And then something happens. And I won't talk about it too okay. much. So watch watch the show. Yeah. Something happens where they realize he's not a good person to live with. So they uh, move them in with their Uncle Monty. Well, then uh, something happens. to un- And then okay. Uncle Monty dies. I'm spoiling it there, but <laughs> okay. this trend happens like through yeah. the rest of the books. It's like, oh, we'll go, go like, live with this aunt. Oh, I mean, well. I guess 
I mean, this is just speculation, so you don't have to really answer it, because I, I guess it would be a pretty heavy spoiler, but I wonder if there's kind of, like, a supernatural or, like, a curse or some sort of reasonable explanation for, like, why horrible things keep happening to these kids. Well, it um, it also becomes pretty obvious that the reason all these things are happening is mm-hmm. because they'll go live with their aunt, aunt, uncle, cousin, former roommate, whatever, and everything will be going great, and everything will be, like, sunny and... Uh, shiny mm-hmm. and wonderful and then this mysterious stranger will show up this like weird really weird character and the kids immediately go oh god damn it that's Cal- count olaf isn't so it so it's kind of like <laughs> scooby-doo almost like well it would I be scooby-doo it would be scooby-doo if um was it fred and all of them knew exactly who the villain was at the beginning okay and nobody you. else like no of the coherent so adults instead of a ghost in disguise, it's like the same person, this <laughs> stalker, kind of dressing up as different people and right. stalking these kids. Right, because uh, the whole premise is these Baudelaire kids are orphans to very rich parents, so the parents have a fortune, and Count mm-hmm. Olaf once said fortune. Okay. So he's trying to do all of these things to get That's this fortune. Cool. He's kind of like an evil Scrooge McDuck. Like, instead of taking care of his offspring, uh, he just wants to, like, chisel them for money that's exactly what he wants to do um well i guess moving on from one series of unfortunate events to another series of unfortunate events uh, i chose a couple of books to talk about for this episode all right um and my love of the written word has been unabated (laughs) even in this uh digital landscape like i still really like just picking up a physical book and I got a couple from my Uncle Pat. Um, one I expressed interest in just from hearing people, uh, the author being interviewed on the radio a bunch of times, Sam Pinones. <laughs> I wrote a book called Dreamland. Okay. And that is a, um, it's a nonfiction book about America's uh, prescription pain pill and heroin epidemic. Oh, okay. And kind of like how the uh, proliferation of um, prescription painkillers mm-hmm. led to... Uh, like the increased addiction in heroin that people are experiencing now, like as when people talk about the the heroin epidemic or the opiate epidemic, um, those two threads are like very intertwined mm-hmm. from very disparate realities. Yes. And what Sam Quinones does is uh, he kind of creates this narrative, like creates this story, which tells both sides of that uh, struggle. Okay. So it's not there. There are some people. Um, there is like discussion about addiction, but it's not so much in analyzing the victims of the her- of the opiate epidemic as the perpetrators. Sometimes unintentional, sometimes completely intentional. Mm. But uh, it's just really, really well done. It's kind of like the equivalent of watching a really good ten hour documentary. Okay, so a nice light read. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> the thing too. Is like you would think it's so depressing and miserable reading a book about that, but because. Uh, Sam Quinones writes it in such a entertaining and readable and informative way. It actually reads fairly quickly, and like kind of like the way he lays out uh, the progression of the opiate epidemic. It's almost like he's like weaving this grand tale, like this grand history of how, like this one theory of how things happen. Mm-hmm. So the basic premise is that people used to not be used to like not be able to get pain pills ever, right? Hardly, like unless you're like even if you're dying in excruciating pain. Because, uh, like, especially during the drug war, like, people were, like, really cracking down on anything that could mm-hmm. be abused. So people would end up dying in, like, horrible pain. And then eventually they got to the point where, like, okay, we'll give it to people dying of cancer. 
Mm-hmm. And um, once they did that, there was a paper that was eventually written. Well, it wasn't even a paper. It was like a letter to the editor, and they're like, pain pills aren't addictive if given to people in pain. Oh. <laughs> but uh, So straight up, straight up lies. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was kind of like this one kernel of an observation, almost like an anecdote. But it was used as a basis for so much change in practice. Interesting. And in the ways pain pills were marketed. So basically in the New England Journal of Medicine, there was this letter. I think it's called like the Jick letter. I don't know. It's in the book. But it, hmm. there was a famous letter. And basically the person said that in um, this study or like in their personal experience, people that were addicted pain pills but were in chronic pain or like often terminal patients wouldn't become addicted. Hmm. Well, what that eventually opened the door for, what people wedged in, was this idea that you could give pain pills to people that were no longer addictive. That were, so people that were no longer... Like, the pain, like, pain pills have always been addicted, like, people have always been getting addicted to, like, poppy or opium or morphine. Right. Well, they thought they could create a version of that. Oh, that wouldn't get you addicted? They they would relieve your pain, but you wouldn't get addicted. Hmm. Did that work? Well, (laughs) spoiler alert. No. (laughs) So kind of what happened was that they started off in, with good intentions uh-huh. and thought that they could create like time released pills that would or or they could like create oh. compounds that would keep people from being able to abuse it. Okay. But junkies like were still able to find a way or people would unintentionally any kind of opiate will you'll gradually you'll get a higher and higher tolerance. Right. So you need more of it to feel the same effect. So if you're getting opiates for like a bad knee or like back pain that never goes away, mm-hmm. you're just going to be nursing this addiction like, yeah this like chronic opiate addiction and it's like basically the same addiction as heroin it's like the same mm-hmm. molecule yeah so i i you brought up the heroin and the uh opiate and it reminded me of an episode of adam ruins everything mm-hmm. the tv show that they did an episode on uh i think it was drug addiction or it was just drugs in general and talked yeah. about the how the transition between heroin to uh oxycontin mm-hmm. um nowadays where heroin used to be essentially it was saying heroin used to be prescribed and then yeah people actually that's something that covers in the book when heroin was first prescribed at the beginning of the 20th century right they thought it was a miracle drug they would basically do the same thing kill pain without making you addicted yeah and they would put in like kids cough syrup and stuff right because hey <laughs> and make it hurt less make them calm down <laughs> and make them make them chill out a bit yeah um but then well we figured out you know what heroin does and later we needed we needed another way to reduce pain so mm. oxycontin came into effect yeah. and they advertised the hell out of it yeah and so that's part of it too is that they marketed it as a non-addictive pain pill right and the thing is is like part of it is that they were kind of fooling themselves mm-hmm. but then part of it too was that once people actually started making money off of it and the pharmaceutical companies yeah started Troy is making make it rain gestures that you can't <laughs> see if you're listening to this but they're pretty cool okay so they um once they got hooked to the money, right? They were addicted to the cash, and they had all these patients addicted to their pills. So, like all these pain pill mills started opening up, where mm-hmm. they were like really shady doctors, very unregulated, where you could be like there would be lines forming around the block, yeah, people just paying doctors cash, handing out people like shoplifting scripts. for their um to get their fix, and then the other thing that was happening simultaneously. I think I know what you're going to talk okay. about. So this is when. Everybody can get as much opium, or not opium, um, Oxycontin as they want. Yeah. And the U.S. government realizes, hey, we're getting a lot of people addicted to Oxycontin. Yeah. And we that should took, probably stop this. That took this. Like, more than a decade to figure out. It took, like, public health officials and people, like, really looking at what was going on to mm-hmm. figure out. Because 
for a while they kind of fooled themselves into like oh this is a revolution in pain and we're just like they started treating pain as like a vital sign mm-hmm. and basically it was like this idea emerged that patients had a right to be free from pain mm. but the only way to do that was, was... to pump people full of painkillers right <laughs> so eventually the unit uh the, the government realizes hey we shouldn't get all these people addicted i have an idea let's stop letting it making it so easy to get these painkillers yeah. which at first seems like a great idea yeah. except the problem with drug addicts is that when you take away their pills they don't stop becoming drug yeah. addicts yeah and they didn't have any like treatment there was like, at least not inadequate treatment um, for, like, rehab and opportunities like that. But there was also an influx of black tar heroin coming up from Mexico. Right. And there was this one town where, like, he explains that there's all these towns where, like, in this little village in Mexico, everybody goes to this city and, like, they get into the roofing business. Or mm-hmm. everybody gets into this, this city and they get in the restaurant business. Well, like, this town, Nayarit, in Mexico, everybody moves to, it started out as, like, a city on the West Coast, I think, like a suburb of San Francisco, mm-hmm. and they would sell black tar heroin, mm-hmm. which is like a less refined. They had like poppies growing in the hills. Okay. They would hide it in like little tiny balloons in their mouths. They figured out a way to basically have like conflict free drug trafficking where they wouldn't challenge gangs, hmm. they wouldn't fight over turf. They basically go into cities where there wasn't a big gang presence, set up these little cells. Okay. And the cells were kind of like franchises that would like basically deliver you heroin it was all about like customer service oh so they were like yeah so it was like basically so that it was like safe for the addicts or safer mm-hmm. um convenient and it was also extremely cheap because the cells would not fight each other they actually it was like all market driven they would price okay they would go into like price wars okay. so they would like fight over like customers and like if people would try to quit they would like even give them free heroin mm-hmm. and basically these cells started to spread throughout the country and then they would go to places like methadone clinics or places where people had already gotten hooked to other uh, drugs yeah prescription painkillers but they oh. would sell the black tar for cheaper mm-hmm. and it was like this kind of um evil genius like capitalist scheme yes but on a such a small scale where like these people weren't like becoming billionaires or like they weren't becoming Scarface. They were becoming like a guy who could afford to buy a decent home in his like in, in Mexico and show off how rich he was hmm. by going to America and trafficking heroin for six months or a year. Oh wow! Yeah. So, <laughs> so that's the so that's the book. So, so that's, that's the nonfiction <laughs> book Dreamland, and then the book that goes along with it uh, is a book. So, uh, Dreamland's very recent. Came out in twenty fifteen. Okay, you can find it in paperback now. Uh, another paperback book, this one came out in 2005, and the sequel also came out in 2015. Okay. Uh, they're both by Don Winslow. This, the first one is called The Power of the Dog, and the second one is called The Cartel. Okay. And what it tells is a fictionalized version of the American drug war, hmm. also involving Mexico. And the parallels this book draws, it's a little bit more of a period piece in the beginning, starts in the 70s. But it draws okay. all these parallels between the drug war in Mexico and the Vietnam War. Really? So okay. Th- so there's a CIA operative, former CIA operative in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. They send him to Mexico to fight in the drug war. Mm-hmm. But it's like the same thing. It's like they'll find the poppy fields and then they'll want to pour pesticides everywhere and burn the villages of the people where they're like growing poppy mm. in their village. And it's like, or the, you know, it's like uh, the, the police, the federales are just like line people up and execute them. Oh, geez. Just okay. like. In Vietnam, there were, like, all these war crimes committed. And it's, like, drawing all these parallels. But Hmm. this book, I think, is going to be very critical of the drug war. Okay. But it's neat seeing, like, the nonfiction side Mm -hmm. and the fiction side together and, like, how brutal they both are. Yeah, so you can base your, what you know off of and judge how accurate this nonfiction book, or this fiction book is, yeah. And they're kind of, like, both capturing, like, um, 
like drug addiction and like drug trafficking and like these problems in our society and how they're handled mm-hmm. but they're also kind of showing in their both ways like how incredibly botched what we've been trying for the last few decades <laughs> is, is like yeah. and how inadequate it is to uh, solve these problems and how they might even be like creating the problems and not solving them. Right. So when did the actual like heroin epidemic, uh, as it were, start happening? Well, the most recent one started happening in like the mid 2000s up until today. Okay. And that's when they basically started cracking down on the um, pain pain mm-hmm. mills. But then also there was this already this network of cheap Mexican black tar. Yeah. And they kind of like there was this symbiosis going on. Okay. Where they phenomena both kind of fed into each other creating addicts and then serving them right one legally and one illegally but both for cold hard Same, cash for yeah. money um no i know i was asking because i remember in when i was in high school like this got brought up a bunch essentially the heroin epidemic breaking out in cincinnati like mm-hmm. all these people that were overdosing on heroin or getting addicted to heroin and um, <laughs> that's what you hear in school over and over right oh yeah <laughs> yeah but it was it was a. Uh, no, it was really weird. We had, um, like, people that I knew, like, from grade school. And I went to a, like, nice Catholic, mm-hmm. uh, like, grade school and high school. But there were people that I know that, like, were getting addicted to heroin yeah. during that time. Yeah. So, I know. It's like, when you're, being, when you're around people that have a drug addiction and you're, like, they have a problem, then it's, like, really... If you know them, it becomes very obvious. Yeah. And you can kind of see how, like, they're slowly destroying each themselves, but then also, like, how usually they're using it to deal with some other, like, bigger problem that they can't handle a lot mm-hmm. of times. Is Yeah, so, no, it's like, when you're talking about that stuff, it's like, yeah, for for, for many people, it probably does hit home. Yeah, and well, that's the other thing, too, that the Dreamland brings up, is that a lot of these, like, really intense drug problems, like, start getting intention when it's middle-class, suburban mm-hmm. white people that are affected. Yeah. And that's part of what... The heroin epidemic, like the prescription pain pill epidemic, it was people that were a lot of times on disability mm-hmm. or people that had kind of been left behind in the new economy, like or like um, people in areas that just don't have a lot of opportunities or people that are from like nice suburbs. And just because like the, you know, their doctor prescribes them pills for like yeah. when they get their wisdom teeth pulled out and then they get addicted to Vicodin and go to Oxycontin. And then mm-hmm. they... uh, it's really, is it real? People get addicted to, like, after they get their wisdom teeth pulled? If they, if, well, so it could be one of those situations where, like, your doctor gives you 80 pills. Oh. When maybe you needed five. Oh. And so then, then you have a bunch sitting uh, sitting around. Yeah, and if you're taking them every day for, like, a week or a month, like, yeah, you'll get slowly addicted to them. Hmm. And so, um, I mean, there's no, there is a, there is a right way to use opiates and prescription opiates. Right. But the way that it's been practiced recently is just, like, a lot of over-prescription, yeah. a lot of lax oversight, which has now kind of gotten resolved, but it's sort of like once you open Pandora's box... Well, it's the idea of, it's like, oh, I'll prescribe I'll prescribe as much as you need because they're probably getting paid a little bit on the side mm-hmm. for how much they prescribe. Yeah, and they're also... Well, like, yeah, they the, the doctors want to make can make money off of it. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the marketers of the pharmacies can make money off of it, and people will start demanding it. Yeah. And they also explains too, like apparently doctor surveys started becoming very important, and like how it related to insurance companies even. Interesting. And so the doctors would want to make their their patients, happy. aka customers, happy. And uh, yeah, if you have somebody that's just kind of like comes in because you know maybe they've have uh, like chronic back pain, mm-hmm. uh, just, they just them- yeah, just all I want doc is some pain pills to make it you know to feel better, hmm. you know. So yeah, it's really. Um, but it's really well done. Like, I know this, these books kind of sound like they're downers, but they're very fascinating in how they dissect these very complicated problems and issues. Right. And the characters that are created, both on the good and bad side, in a fictional version, or, like, 
in the nonfiction version, there's also like stories of hope of people kind of like trying to tackle these problems, generate awareness, like heal their broken communities. And mm-hmm. it's not all doom and gloom. That was kind of the theme of our episode today. We realized <laughs> when we both brought out our topics, but I think that's kind of the neat thing too, is like in darkness, you can sort of find the sense of hope or this sense of like things will get better. Yeah. You can see you and it worked out in the series of unfortunate events as well. It's like each time that something tragic happens at the end of a story or at the end of the book, you know that the next episode is going to be something good has to happen. Something like happy to brighten it back up. Yeah, it has to leaven it mm-hmm. out a little bit. And I think like the best, like that's kind of the good thing about like either dark comedies or um, even shows like The Wire. Yeah. Like where they're very dark and grim and like sharp mm-hmm. uh, around the edges. But then there's moments of like tenderness or like moments of more like sensitivity or like gentleness. Right. Or like, or even joy or brightness mm-hmm. that kind of, um, it almost makes the sad times that much sadder, but then also like the sweet times, times like that, that much, much sweeter. Yeah, too. So, mm-hmm. well, on that positive note. It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, kind of a positive note. Kind of a positive note. Bittersweet. Uh, we're going to start uh, wrapping up the episode. Thank you guys so much for listening, folks. Um, we wanted to thank DennisSongs.com for our intro and outro music. Uh, if you need royalty-free music for any of your projects, uh, go on over to DennisSongs.com and they'll hook you up. And if you'd like to support our podcast, um, the best way to do that is to like us on Facebook, share us with your friends, share us with people you think would like the podcast, or AmericanFantastic.com. Uh, you can also become a member on Patreon mm-hmm. and support us that way. Uh, like the sign says, anything helps. Uh, keep your earbuds warm and cozy. Keep you very well entertained with new content and creations coming out. Um, you can also check out AmericanFantastic.com for more audio content. Uh, all the episodes of the American Fantastic Radio Hour are on there. All the previous Hip Squared episodes are on there. And all the new audio content that we'll be producing uh, will also be on there. And if you'd like to find out when new stuff gets put out, like us on Facebook and you'll get notified that way. Um, and you can also just kind of check back on the podcast or yeah. I mean, on the website. And also, I will mention, we're working on getting iTunes. Yeah, we're working on getting iTunes. So if you have an iDevice yes. uh, or some other device that wants to pull things from the iTunes podcast library, we're working on it, I and promise. It, yeah, so you'll be able to download it um, in your iTunes feed eventually. If you like listening to it on SoundCloud, you can always keep listening to it there. Yep. Uh, download the app if you want to be able to listen to it on the go. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess, uh, yeah, that's about all I got to say. Um, but we will catch y'all next time. Anything else, Troy? I think that's it. All right. Toodles. Toodles. Toodles.